Welcome to Trinity United Methodist Church in Duncanville, Texas. Today we conclude our sermon series on the Sermon on the Mount. When we build a foundation upon Christ, then our house will be solid as a rock. Join us for the message, Solid as a Rock. Hello, welcome to worship here at Trinity United Methodist Church in Duncanville, Texas. You know, when we build a foundation upon Christ, then our house is going to be solid as a rock. And so I invite you to stay for our message later that will be entitled Solid as a Rock. Also like to invite you to make a gift to the ministry of this church. You can do that through our website, tumcd.org, through our church center app, or by uh, writing a check and mailing it to the church. Our Scripture this week comes from the New Testament, Matthew, all out of chapter 7, verses 7 through 14, and 28 and 29. Listen now to the word of God. Ask, and it will be given you. Search, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened for you. For everyone who asks receives, and everyone who searches finds, and for everyone who knocks, the door will be opened. Is there anyone among you who, if your child asks for bread, will give it a stone? Or if the child asks for a fish, will give a snake? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children... How much more will your Father in heaven give good things to those who ask him? In everything do to others as you would have them do to you, for this is the law and the prophets. Enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the road is easy that leads to destruction, and there are many who take it. For the gate is narrow and the road is hard that leads to life. And there are few who find it. Now then, when Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were astounded at his teaching. For he taught them as one having authority and not as their scribes. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Mahatma Gandhi, the great activist and leader of the independence movement in British-ruled India, he was a dedicated student of comparative religion. He was raised in the Hindu faith, which is the predominant faith there in India, but he also studied Islam, Jainism, and Christianity. In fact, while living in Pretoria, South Africa, his Quaker friends tried to convert him to Christianity. Well, Gandhi never confessed the Christian faith, but he was fascinated by the teachings of Jesus, particularly the Sermon on the Mount. He claimed that if Christians really lived out the life that was described by Jesus in his famous sermon, he would convert immediately. Notice he never converted. But he did say, I revere the Bible. Christ's Sermon on the Mount fills me with bliss even today. Its sweet words have even today the power to quench my agony of the soul. If I had to face only the Sermon on the Mount and my own interpretation of it, I should not hesitate to say, oh yes, I am a Christian. You see, the Sermon on the Mount has universal appeal. And over the last several weeks, we have been probing Jesus' Sermon on the Mount 
in the Gospel of Matthew. So I wanted us on this last sermon of this series to review what it is that we have explored in these passages. The Sermon on the Mount is the most complete summary of the ethical teachings of Jesus that we find anywhere in the New Testament. And it's here that we're given a glimpse of what life in the kingdom of God is all about. As Matthew tells the story, Jesus' ministry is just getting started. He had called first his disciples, and not long afterwards, he took them up to the top of a mountain and he began to teach, him, teach them about the kingdom. The heart of Jesus' proclamation of the gospel is that it is time to repent, to change our lives, to stop, turn around, and give our lives over to God. It's time to repent because the kingdom of God is near. Though the earth may now be in the grip of the Roman Empire and the powers of this world, there is nonetheless a rival kingdom that demands our higher allegiance. This kingdom is an extension of God's divine heavenly realm that is now breaking into this world to establish the realm of God on earth. And so our mission as disciples is to go and, in effect, I love this line, to be co-conspirators with God, to establish outposts of this kingdom, pockets of resistance where God's sovereign reign of love and grace is recognized and celebrated. Not only God is going to be able to bring about the complete fulfillment and establishment of the kingdom, but in the interim, we strive to do the will of God so that the will of God is done on earth as it is in heaven. And Jesus begins the Sermon on the Mount by casting a vision of what the kingdom of God looks like. And in the kingdom of God, the typical values that we have are turned upside down. Because in the kingdom of God, it is the poor in spirit, in their recognition of their need for God, who are happy and blessed. Not the self-made individualist who needs no one. The meek and teachable are blessed, not the proud and arrogant. The makers of peace are blessed, not the violently powerful. And in the greatest turnaround of all, the most blessed of us are those who are reviled and persecuted for the kingdom. In your attempt to establish an outpost of the kingdom of, of love, if it's being met with resistance, then chances are you're on the right track. So, where the, so did the prophets also meet with resistance that, who went before you. Now, in Jesus' vision, disciples are to be the salt of the earth, bringing out, as Eugene Peterson says, all the God flavors of this world, working to preserve and purify and to heal. Disciples are called to be light of the world, illuminating the night that, um, so that the heat of God's love can penetrate the dark places in this world. And after casting this vision, Jesus lays out the essence and the true meaning of Torah, God's law sent to guide us in leading lives of righteousness. You see, Jesus makes the law both easier and much, much harder. Unlike many of the religious teachers of his day, he is relatively unconcerned with the minutia of the law. So that kind of makes following it easier. Jesus is very concerned, however, with the condition of our souls. And therefore, he actually ends up making the law much more challenging than we ever realized. Because it's not just following the minutia of the law. It's about, are we not only pure in action, but are we pure in spirit? Are our hearts in the right place? 
Are we so filled with love that we can even love our enemies? Are we able to be perfect in love just as God is perfect in love? And so if we can answer yes to these questions, if our hearts are righteous, then the outward actions will also be holy and righteous. And all that minutia, it's going to take care of itself. To live lives of love, however, we're going to need to pray, and we're going to need to pray often. In the Lord's Prayer, Jesus teaches us how to pray. To pray for both the fulfillment and the completion of the kingdom and of our most basic daily needs. To pray for forgiveness as well as the grace to forgive others. To pray for the ultimate defeat of evil and the final triumph of righteousness. The more we pray, the more trust we're going to have in God. The more trust we have in God, the deeper our faith will be. The deeper our faith, the more we can let go of fear. And when we let go of fear, we can finally let go of the worry and the anxiety that weigh us down, as well as the need to judge the actions and attitudes of others. So we're freed from these dual burdens, both the worry and anxiety and this compulsion to judge. We're free to fully live into the grace and favor of God. And this newfound kingdom then makes us bold in our relationship with God. And this brings us to today's passage. Jesus tells us to go ahead and ask, and it will be given to you. Search, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened for you. For everyone who asks receives, and everyone who searches finds. For everyone who knocks, the door will be open. So go ahead and tell God what you really want and what you think you really need, because God already knows anyway. Throughout the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is laying out God's dream for the kingdom. So go ahead and lay out your dreams to God. But don't think, however, that you're going to get something just because you ask for it. In fact, very little of what you ask for may actually be given to you. Jesus' admonition to ask, to search, and to knock is not some sort of a magic formula or equation, or equation for getting what we want from God, as much as we would like that to be true. And I think about that old Janis Joplin song that goes, Oh Lord, won't you buy me a Mercedes-Benz? Well, you can try it, but I don't really think there's going to be a new car waiting for you in the driveway tomorrow morning. It really is more based on what Jesus tells us next. Is there anyone among you who, if your child asks for bread, will give a stone? Or if the child asks for a fish, will give a snake? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven good, uh, give good gifts to those who ask them? You notice it says that God will give you good things. And let's face it, many of the things we ask for are not good. At least they're not good for us right now. And so, yes, we may very well give our children, our child, good food to eat, such as a slice of bread or a piece of fish. But do we also give them all the junk food and candy they want to just because they asked for it? We give them what they need, not necessarily what they want. I had a friend growing up who was an only child. And she received so much more at Christmas and birthdays than I did, being one of four children. She got more toys, more clothes, more records. 
One year they got a backyard trampoline. The next year they got a ski boat. I didn't think this was particularly fair. Uh, since I suspected that my dad made more money than her dad. And so if we had more money, why couldn't we have more things? And I asked this of my mother, who very wisely just said, different families make different decisions about money. When we got to high school, my friend and I decided that we're going to go to college together and that we would room together in the dorm. And for years, we talked about how much fun we were going to have when we go off to college together. Then about halfway through our senior year, my friend called and said that she was not going to be able to join me at college. She and her parents had talked, and there just wasn't the money there to send her off to college. If she really wanted to go, she could live at home and start out at the nearby junior college. And over the next several years, I watched as my friend had to work full-time, moved in and out of her parents' house while trying to go to school. Now, to her credit, she has a master's degree now, but it was really, really hard for her to do this. And so while she was slaving away at junior college, working full-time, I went off to a four-year university. I got to live in the dorm and go to school full-time. Now, I occasionally, I, I, I worked part-time and during the summers, but that was really just for extra spending money because all my major expenses, tuition, books, room, and board, that was all paid for by my parents. And all four of us, my siblings and I, were all able to get college degrees because my parents hadn't given us all that we had asked for. They gave us what we needed, though it took us years to truly appreciate this fact. And likewise, God gives us the good gifts we need, not necessarily what we think that we want. Asking, searching, knocking. These are not a magic formula for prayer. Rather, it's an invitation to prayer. And it therefore becomes this dynamic center of a lively and living relationship with God. A lively and living relationship with God that I hope to talk with more about in our upcoming sermon series. Now, throughout the Gospels, including the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus refers to God as Father, and vibrant prayer enriches our relationship with God so that it begins to resemble the good relationship that we might have with an earthly parent, full of love, but also sometimes urgent and demanding, sometimes filled with anger and misunderstandings, but also filled with the warmth of reconciliation, able to stand up to the challenges of time and finally to last throughout eternity we'll find that a lifetime of vibrant prayer, of asking, of searching, seeking, and knocking with boldness before God will slowly but irrevocably begin to change and transform us. The things we ask for will begin to change. Our desires will change as we start to desire the things of God. And so that gap between what we ask for and what God gives us will therefore actually begin to grow smaller and smaller. And it begins as we commit to being honest with God. And we'll, fi we'll find that when we hold nothing back, when we are wholly honest with God, then God will work to make us holy and honest. Jesus wraps up the middle section of his Sermon on the Mount with what we refer to as the golden rule. And everything do to others as you will have them to do, you, do to you, for this is the law and the prophets. 
In a world with so many rules, this rule may be the only rule that we need. So now the sermon that started with words of comfort, they actually end with words of warning as we come to the last section of the sermon. And his last illustration of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus offers a final admonition to not just hear the words of his teaching, but to put them in action in our own lives. And I must take the responsibility here. The following passage is what I intended for Michael to read instead of the one I actually gave him the the verses for. So it was my mistake that this is what I intended to get read, but I'm going to read it for you right now. And this is how Jesus ends his Sermon on the Mount. Everyone who then hears these words of mine and acts on them will be like a wise man who built his rock, his house on rock. The rain fell, the, the floods came, the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain fell, the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was its fall. Now, as the son of a carpenter, Jesus knew something about construction. He knew that if you take the time to dig down and lay the foundation of the house in bedrock, then therefore your house will be strong and secure. We do the same thing today, and that way your house can withstand all kinds of weather, but if you build it on sand, then the raging waters are going to sweep it away. You see, the Sermon on the Mount represents an entire way of life, but a way of life that is solid and secure, it's founded on rock. Therefore, it can withstand the winds and rains of life. And to use another metaphor, the sermon provides markers along the way to guide us in kingdom living. But Jesus calls us to repent. And so to repent literally means, if you know the Greek behind it, that you You stop the way that you're going, you abandon that way, you turn, and you start a new path. And so when we repent, we turn from a life that we have been living and we begin to walk with Jesus. So again, the Sermon on the Mount is kind of like markers along the way after we've repented to show us the right way of kingdom living. Now, in many ancient cultures, people will set up carns, that is, pilings of rock, to mark a specific path. It's very common in many ancient cultures, but particularly North American cultures, and particularly in the Arctic regions. In the Arctic regions, these pilings of rock are called Inuksut. As the native Arctic peoples migrated, they would look for Inuksut that were built by previous generations to mark the way forward. And here's the model of one that I picked up while visiting um, in the Rocky Mountains of Canada except these would be huge structures that could be seen from miles away. And like the Inuksut, the Sermon on the Mount provides markers along the way for kingdom living. Now Matthew concludes the Sermon on the Mount as Michael read, when Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were astonished at his teachings, for he taught them as one having authority and not as their scribes. This is interesting because at the beginning of the sermon, Matthew tells us that Jesus went up on the mountain to escape the crowds and to teach his disciples. But by the end of the sermon, the crowds are back. So we do well to remember that whatever we say and do in the church, the outside world, the crowds are always watching. 
They're looking to see if our kingdom living is going to be authentic or whether we're going to be pathetic hypocrites. So what are we to make of the Sermon on the Mount? Well, if you're like me, it can kind of leave you a little bit discouraged because it's setting up an impossible standard. I fail to live up to the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees all the time, and I don't know how it's supposed to, my righteousness is supposed to exceed the scribes and Pharisees, as Jesus said. According to the great reformer Martin Luther, that was the main purpose then of the sermon. The impossible standard of the sermon was designed to convict us of our sinfulness and then lead us to repentance. Others have argued that the ethics of the sermon were never really meant for this age, but they were only binding on the next age to come when the kingdom of God is fully established. This way, by the way, was always um, argued by people who really liked a lot of power in this world and didn't want to uh, follow the Sermon on the Mount. In the Anabaptist tradition, which includes Mennonites, the Amish, they teach that the entire sermon is supposed to be followed literally to the letter for life. If someone strikes you on the cheek, you literally turn your other cheek as well. And so perhaps the best way to look at the sermon, it's the way I look at the Sermon on the Mount, is to view it as an idealized ethics of the kingdom of God, meant to be followed both now and in the future. But it may not necessarily be meant to be followed literally in all circumstances, but instead it represents an ideal where all ethical decisions are based on a law of love and a law that, uh, the love that springs forth from deep in our hearts. Every generation of Christians is called to then interpret and live out this ethic of love within their particular time and place. I'm thinking here of particularly that sometimes uh, police officers have to use violence, um, sometimes used inappropriately but often used very appropriately to safeguard our lives and the lives of others. And so that is a time and place that perhaps turning the other cheek might not be the best thing to do, but it's part of our idealized ethics of the kingdom. In our pastor's Bible study right now, we've been reading through the Torah, that is the first five books of the Old Testament, which is also known as the law. And we've just finished Leviticus, and we're about to start the book of Numbers. And one of the things that we've encountered is that often the laws found in the Torah seem very far removed from our modern lives. Some of them are just really odd. A lot of them are very, very bloody. But one of the conclusions that we've come to is that the biblical Torah represents the ancient Israelites' attempt to live out the precepts of the Ten Commandments within their social and historical location in their particular time and place. And I think likewise we must find how to live out not only the Ten Commandments, but the Sermon on the Mount and its ethic of love in our particular time and place. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the German theologian who was hanged by the Nazis just weeks before the fall of the Third Reich, had this to say about the sermon. Humanly speaking, we could understand and interpret the Sermon on the Mount in a thousand different ways. Jesus knows one possibility, simple surrender and obedience, not interpreting it or applying it, but doing and obeying it. At the very end of the Sermon on the Mount, the crowds are shocked at what Jesus had to say. And they're not necessarily shocked by the content of what he had to say, because Jesus' ethical teaching was, was firmly rooted in the Jewish faith. 
What they found so shocking is how he taught as one having authority. Christ is the one with the authority. And Christians throughout the world, throughout time, we've, we've argued and understood the reality of Jesus in different ways. Some have emphasized his divinity. Others have emphasized his humanity. And exa exactly who Jesus was, what he came to do, that's been debated vigorously for centuries. But one thing that makes, though, that makes us Christians is that however we understand Christ, Jesus, nonetheless, is the final authority. And Christ, therefore, is the lens through which we view the world and is, therefore, the model that we aspire our lives to be like. So that in the end, Christ is the word of God. And his vision for the kingdom, it is vivid and it is powerful. It draws us in and keeps our gaze. And it's the place where I want to live. And so Christ is inviting us to make this kingdom our eternal home. Amen. Now, with the confidence that we have as the children of God, let us pray the prayer that our Lord taught us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Remember that you can always find a recording on, of our service on our Facebook page, on our website, tumcd.org, or an audio recording on our podcast, Jane's Most Excellent Church Adventure. And so now receive this benediction. Go forth from this place and make the kingdom of God a reality in this world. Spread God's dream of peace, justice, righteousness, and love. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. We hope you enjoyed and were blessed by today's service. Join us every Sunday here on Facebook Live at 11. Next Sunday, we'll begin our new sermon series, How to Love God, based on the membership vows of the United Methodist Church, loving God with our prayers, presence, gifts, service, and witness. You'll also find audio recordings of all our services on our podcast, Jane's Most Excellent Church Adventure. Remember, we're now worshiping both in person in our sanctuary as well as online. God bless you in the week ahead. We'll see you Sunday at Trinity United Methodist Church.